Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. On the morning of May 10th, 1865, Confederate President Jefferson Davis was captured by the 4th Michigan Cavalry near Irwinville, Georgia. Over a month prior, as defeat seemed imminent, Davis fled Richmond, Virginia, and traveled deep into the South with plans to head west of the Mississippi and establish a new government with the remaining money of the Confederate Treasury. but the United States government was prepared to stop him. And in the wake of Abraham Lincoln's assassination, President Andrew Johnson offered a reward of $100,000 for the capture of the Confederate leader. This, however, was not the only incentive for Union soldiers to capture Davis, as word had spread throughout their ranks of the supposed vast Confederate fortune, a fortune that is yet to be found. The capture of the Confederate president may have been the final death knell for the Confederate government, but it was also the origin of an enduring mystery. For when Jefferson Davis was captured in Georgia on that fateful day, Union forces retrieved nothing from him the few dollars they found in his pocket. Fueling over a century of speculation from treasure hunters and historians alike over the mystery of the lost Confederate gold. My name is Brandon Schecksneider and you are listening Southern Gothic. On the morning of Sunday, April 2nd, 1865, as Confederate President Jefferson Davis was attending services at St. Paul's in Richmond, 
he received word from General Robert E. Lee that he could no longer stop the drive of Union forces and that the president must flee or risk being captured. Davis heeded the warning, and that night two trains departed from Richmond. The first carried the Confederate president, members of the Confederate government, and important documents. And the second was all that remained of the Confederate treasury. Of course, the haste required of this departure caused some difficulty for the Confederates. And to complicate matters, only one treasury clerk remained in Richmond. It was he who first noted the value of these assets after the realization that no one had yet recorded their worth. So he took it upon himself to take note of each and every piece as he sealed the cases for travel. That afternoon, heavy military guards stood watch at the Richmond Railroad Station as uniformed men unloaded eight wagon loads worth of treasure. There were chests, bags, and barrels, all filled and affixed with the official seal of the Confederacy. This precious cargo included mountains of American golden double eagle coins and Mexican silver dollars, as well as ingots, nuggets, and silver bricks. Navy Captain William H. Parker was placed in command of protecting the treasure. Aware of the valuable contents placed in his care, Parker formed a military guard of 60 men, primarily young Navy midshipmen, some as young as 12 years old, who at the time had been on a training vessel on the St. James River. Decades later, in 1893, Parker gave an account of the event to a Richmond newspaper, reporting that the government funds he had been placed in charge of was, quote, about $500,000 in gold, silver, and bullion. A similar estimate of its size was made by senior treasury teller Walter Philbrook, who watched as the money was moved from wagon to train. Philbrook estimated that the value he saw that day was, quote, less than $600,000. Most of these estimates refer primarily to the vast amount of coins and precious metals loaded onto the train, omitting the millions of dollars of what had become practically worthless Confederate banknotes and bonds, as well as approximately 16 to 18,000 pounds of sterling and, quote, Liverpool acceptances, which could be used at a British bank. Also included in the cargo and not included in value estimates were the gold reserves, for the Richmond banks. In his book, Flight into Oblivion, historian A.J. Hanna reports that these reserves had an estimated value of $450,000. But he also makes it clear that Davis and others acknowledged that the bank's gold was not a part of the Treasury's wealth and as such would not be used to pay for any expenses incurred by the Confederate government. The exact value of the train's cargo will likely never be known, as these estimates are largely based on historical evidence and reported anecdotes. However, 
and less than a week from its departure from Richmond, the estimated value of these assets mysteriously dropped by almost 50%. After departing Richmond, the trains headed southwest toward Danville, Virginia. The journey was slow due to frequent stops for workmen to repair war-torn rail tracks, resulting in over 18 hours of travel to reach Danville, only 140 miles away from Richmond. Upon arrival, the Treasury Department once again opened for business. Treasury Clerk Captain Clark and Chief Teller Philbrook paid out from the official treasurer an unspecified amount for, quote, informal requisitions and redeemed numerous Confederate bank bills for silver, paying the excruciatingly low rate of one silver dollar for every 70 Confederate paper bills. Then, after three days of operation, the treasure was moved once again. It was at this time that the Confederate treasure was first assigned an exact value. Treasury clerk Captain Clark reported it to be $327,000, a vastly smaller number than what had been estimated by Parker and Philbrook in Richmond. Perhaps this was the result of the payments and currency redemptions completed over the previous days, but there is no known documentation accounting for the specific amounts of each transaction, leaving only conjecture as to how such a substantial change occurred. To make matters worse, by this time, rumors that Jefferson Davis had escaped Richmond with millions of gold and silver coins were beginning to circulate. From Danville, Virginia, Captain William Parker was given orders to see the treasury further south to Charlotte, North Carolina, where the money could be safely stored in the old U.S. Mint. Yet before reaching their final destination, the train made a single stop in Greensboro, North Carolina. There, Treasury Clerk Clark reported that from the Confederate Treasury, they were leaving behind two boxes of gold sovereigns, totaling approximately $35,000, for use by President Davis and his cabinet, as well as providing roughly $39,000 in pay for the troops serving under General Joseph Johnston, who had still not surrendered to Union troops. It is also noted that although money was left for Jefferson Davis's use, he never personally took possession of the funds. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. 
We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Y'all, I want to take a quick minute to tell you about one of my favorite nonprofit organizations here in Middle Tennessee. It's called Poster Nashville. Now, this organization supports people during times of housing or medical crises by providing compassionate, temporary care for their pets. That's right. Poster helps secure loving homes for beloved little furballs when their human companions are going through things that might otherwise cause them to have to give them up. But since Poster began back in 2020, they've been able to reunite nearly 250 pets with their loving pet parents after they were able to secure housing, keeping families together through tough times. Of course, y'all, I have to say from personal experience, it's been an awesome program to be around. My kids and I have been fortunate enough to hang out with some of the pups. And trust me, what Poster is doing through a devoted network of volunteers is absolutely heartwarming. So if you'd like to help, Poster is in the middle of their annual fundraiser right now, trying to hit a goal of $20,000. And it would mean the world to me if you'd consider helping us get there. All you got to do is visit southerngothicmedia.com slash bark. That's right, southerngothicmedia.com slash bark. From Greensboro, the treasure then traveled to Charlotte, where Captain Parker oversaw its deposit into the mint and ensured it was placed under guard. Believing his work to be completed, Parker attempted to report to his superiors of his success, but was unable to get a message through. Soon enough, he discovered that shortly after their train had traveled on from Greensboro, Union forces destroyed the railroad tracks at the city of Salisbury, cutting off all communication between the Confederate Treasury and the Confederate government. Knowing that the Federals were coming ever closer to Charlotte, Parker was forced to make a unilateral decision. By now, rumors surrounding the Confederate Treasure had reached estimated sums upwards of $10 million. So Parker decided to relocate it once more. The money was removed from the mint and once again packed into a train with a supply of goods including sugar, coffee, bacon, and flour. Some stories claim that they even went so far as to pack the treasure and the containers with the sugar and coffee to better disguise it. Then, on April 13, 1865, the train reached Chester, South Carolina, where it was unloaded and transferred to wagons. Though the guard traveled as swiftly as possible, travel by wagon was slow, and the men only managed to cover roughly six miles a day, reaching the city of Newberry on the 16th, where they would once again load the wealth onto yet another train. 
from there, they headed further south to Abbeville and then Washington, Georgia. Captain Parker intended to take the money on to Macon, Georgia, but upon learning how much of the state was occupied by federal forces, he decided against it, and instead they moved on to the city of Augusta. But Augusta was about to fall to Union troops, so Parker changed course once again and returned to Washington, Georgia, where he had hoped to meet Davis and finally hand off responsibility for the treasure. Yet Davis was not there. So he continued on back to Abbeville to meet the Confederate president. Fortunately, this time, the load was lighter as the Richmond Bank's gold reserves were left behind with the Bank of Georgia. Upon arrival back in South Carolina, Captain Parker reported, quote, Here I stored the treasure in a warehouse on the public square and placed a guard over it as before. The next day, Jefferson Davis arrived, and finally, after a 30-day journey with wagons and trains of treasure, Captain William Parker and his midshipman guard could now go home. The Confederate treasure was then placed under the protection of the Confederate Secretary of War, General John Breckinridge, who, along with a force of 4,000 cavalrymen, prepared to relocate it back to Washington, Georgia. Along the way, however, a mutiny arose when his men argued they wanted their back pay for service and that if the Union troops captured the treasury, they would receive nothing. In spite of his inability to authorize these payments, Breckinridge was given no choice so he paid each of his men $26 from the Treasury's funds, a total payout of over $108,000. Then, upon its arrival back in Washington, Georgia, the Confederate Treasury was worth less than $145,000. On May 5, 1865, almost a month after General Robert E. Lee's surrender to Union forces, President Jefferson Davis met for the last time with his cabinet, officially dissolving the government of the Confederate States of America. As for the remains of the treasure, two orders were given. First, $40,000 was used to pay soldiers returning to Augusta, Georgia. Second, former clerk, Captain Clark, was placed in charge of all remaining funds. He then paid cabinet members, officers, and soldiers a total of $56,000 and spent another $2,600 on what is identified simply as miscellaneous expenses. Now, approximately $86,000 in gold remained, specifically saved to serve as backing in hopes that the Confederacy might live on west of the Mississippi River 
and that at some time in the future, the new Confederacy would be able to reclaim the southern states it once held. Navy Paymaster, Lieutenant Commander James A. Semple, and Navy Chief Clerk Edward Tidball were entrusted with protecting what was left, primarily gold coins and bars. Their orders were to hide the treasure in the bottom of a carriage and take it on to Charleston or Savannah, where they could ship the gold to Bermuda or Nassau, then have it safely be sent to a bank in Liverpool, England. But the gold never left the country, and even more mysteriously, it seems to have merely disappeared. Most of the stories and myths surrounding the remaining Confederate gold begin here. In contrast to historical documentation, many legends claim the Confederate treasury was valued in the millions of dollars at the time of its disappearance, which today, if it still exists as a single unit, would be worth upwards of $140 million. A number that has captivated the imaginations of treasure hunters for over a century and a half. Some believe that the first people to spread the tale of Confederate gold were actually Union officers who viewed it as a way to incentivize Union troops as they searched for Jefferson Davis. Of course, when Davis was captured and no treasure was found, the story only grew in infamy. Post-war veterans associations also spread rumors of the vast wealth hidden somewhere by loyal Southerners. Many believing that the former Confederate leaders were merely waiting for the right time to retrieve it so as to fund the next Southern rebellion. But exactly how much gold and silver there was to find was up for debate. In spite of speculation and first-hand accounts, no one seemed to know how much or exactly what left Richmond that night in April of 1865. And since the treasure had vanished, speculation took on a life of its own. Of course, historians tend to argue that the lost Confederate treasury is merely a myth, and there's nothing left to be found because there wasn't much to begin with, and what was there was likely spent. However, the one piece of the treasury wealth, which Captain Clark never accounted for after its arrival in Danville, were the Mexican silver dollars, which some sources specifically identify 39 kegs of coins. The theory is that the coins, which weighed about 9,000 pounds, would have significantly hindered the wagon train's ability to travel quickly, so they were buried somewhere in Danville, where they could be retrieved later. But after being captured, the area around the city became a Union army camp making it impossible to dig unnoticed. But some evidence does point to the fact that there may actually be Mexican silver dollars still buried in Danville. Over the years, small caches of silver coins 
have been uncovered around the city, though nothing close to 39 kegs of coins, leading many treasure hunters to believe it is in fact buried there, but on city-owned land, specifically a local cemetery. Unfortunately, to this day, Danville officials have refused all requests to dig on city property. Yet the most likely theory surrounding the gold's whereabouts involves the two men whose care was last placed in. After the war, Tidbull returned to his home in Winchester, Virginia. There, he built an elaborate house called Linden Farm and became a prominent citizen in the community. During a modern renovation of his property, a document was found in the wall which unveiled that much of Tidball's post-war good fortune was due to his return to Virginia with a portion of the Confederate treasury he had been assigned to protect. As for Navy Paymaster, Lieutenant Commander Semple, at first it appeared that he may have simply disappeared into the night with his share of gold. However, documents have since been uncovered proving that Semple continued working with exiled Confederate leaders long after the end of the war. For two years after the conflict, Semple traveled between the United States and Canada to collaborate with Confederate sympathizers under the alias of Alan S. James. And these trips were in fact financed by the remains of the Confederate treasury. Of course, when the money finally ran out, Semple returned home. Today, there are numerous stories, news items, and even television specials focused on the hunt for lost Confederate gold. Some of these treasure hunters claim that the gold sits at the bottom of Lake Michigan or the Danville Cemetery. Others, that it's possibly hidden, strewn across the country. And maybe there is, in fact, still hidden treasure from the time of the Confederacy to be found. But it is unlikely to be the Confederate treasure that went south with Jefferson Davis. Yet like all legends that have taken on a life of their own, the mystery of lost Confederate gold endures. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you've been listening to Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic is an independently produced podcast created by siblings Brianne and Brandon Schecksneider with the support of listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to receive even more content, including ad-free episodes, head over to our Patreon page today. The link is in the show notes. Lucky Lady Shacks. Have you ever wondered who the Mary was from Bloody Mary? If the Loch Ness Monster was real or if Ouija boards actually worked? On each episode of the family-friendly Unspookable, 
We look at the histories and mysteries behind your favorite scary stories, myths, and urban legends to get the real stories behind the scares. Want to solve your next mystery? Find and follow Unspookable now wherever you get your podcasts. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.